sometimes the shells were aimed right on villages. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. Adversity has an effect of bonding people together. Tested our metal as a team. They held that man virtually prisoner. Terrible, terrible injustice. Riding out a typhoon in a four and a half thousand ton destroyer. We really feared for our lives. So we got back and we did a march, and I guess that's the memory you hold was all these people booing and hissing as you went and did the march. War itself is horrific, it's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Welcome to Life on the Sea a special spin-off miniseries of Life on the Line podcast. This miniseries profiles nine veterans of the Royal Australian Navy who served in either the Korean War or the Vietnam War. This is episode five, Combat. We will start the episode a little bit before the Melbourne-Evans collision, as featured in the last episode, but most of these stories are set after that fateful day in June 1969. Jim Dixon had been in command at sea, served at Confrontasi, and was also deployed to Vietnam. We last heard from Jim when he was returning home from Vietnam in April 1968 to an unpleasant reception in Sydney. Now, obviously, you stay in the Navy and have quite a career and continues, so I imagine that helps process that kind of disappointing return. But I know you stay on, but did that linger for you and your crew, that feeling? No, you got, to, got over it. One of the things about the, the Navy is you, you change jobs more frequently than you, than you do in most walks of life. Having come back from Vietnam, I was sent off to England again to do my post-grad navigation course and then stay on and do the Royal Navy Staff Course at Greenwich. That was a wonderful sort of subsequent step to uh, Vietnam, which had been, as I say, very demanding work. It was pleasant, delightful to have a bit of family time. My family came with me to UK. I had two kids by this time. How old were they? Well, we went to England in three and one. It's quite a trip. Yep, in uh, 68. Stayed there till the end of... 69, then came back and went to sea again, went as navigator of the Sydney. Sydney had been converted to being troop transport. The Vungtau Ferry? Uh, the Vungtau Ferry. Through 1970, I was navigating, doing the runs to and from Vietnam in the Sydney. So I saw Vietnam and several, a lot, you know, in those years. After a year of navigating the Sydney, I uh, went to the Melbourne as fleet navigator. When I joined Melbourne the first time, it was uh, just after the Voyager Collision 64, when I joined Melbourne as fleet navigator, she was just coming out of repair after the, after the, the Evans, Frank though. Evans collision in 1969. And J.P. Stevenson had left. Now, my captain was uh, David Stevenson, H.D. Stevenson. And he'd been my captain in Tobruk, so he knew me and I knew him. Melbourne was understandably tense, and after two collisions, and didn't have the same air of a happy ship that Sydney had always enjoyed. I'd served in Sydney as a midshipman, a wonderful ship then, when I'd served in her again in 69, 70, during the Vungtau ferry run. Yes, there was an atmosphere about the Sydney, which was singularly different from the Melbourne. Well, Sydney was old hat at that ferry run by that point, so it was It was, it, but it was 
Sydney and Melbourne were the same class of ship, but Melbourne was still an operational carrier in 69. Melbourne, Sydney had been converted to troop transport. But there was, a, again, a very, it was the ultimate in professional appointments as a navigator, the fleet navigator, so I was privileged to hold that position until mid-72 when I was appointed as executive officer of the Naval College down at Jarvis Bay. I, having gone through the Naval College, Flinders Naval Depot, as we called it in those early days, became HMAS Cerberus in the 60s, I'd always hankered after seeing or knowing Jarvis Bay because uh, Jarvis Bay was a... I was there at the Naval College for nearly three years as the commander or second-in-command of the um, college, and uh, that was back to training for me, training the young officers, and I loved that, just loved it. So, and again, nearly three years ashore with my family was marvellous. Having just lived through the horror of the Melbourne-Evans collision, Mark Kinder found himself sailing to war. What happened after the Melbourne? Came back to um, came back to service to do training, and uh, twenty odd months later, finds me on the um, on this beautiful, beautiful uh, ship called the HMAS Brisbane, the tip of Australia's arrow, the the brand new ship that she was. Guided missile destroyer. Guided missile destroyer, Charles F. Adams class destroyer, about four and a half thousand ton. She had two five inch guns. She had torpedo tubes on her. She had Tartar anti anti aircraft missile. She had Icara anti submarine missile. She was really a state of the art. We used to call them the Cadillacs of the sea, her, her sister ships, Perth, Hobart and Brisbane, three sisters. Yeah, they're beautiful. What was your role on the Brisbane? We had many roles. I was now a uh, fully-fledged cook, loving it, doing that, loved the communal duty stuff, learning a trade with, with the life skill attached to it. Although I never cooked later on in City Street, it certainly was uh, most enjoyable whilst in Navy. I was also what they call a ship's diver, not to be confused with the clearance diver, Never to be confused with those guys. Those guys are like our SAS, admired by the fleet. I was nowhere near that. I was what they call a ship's diver as well, which is a shallow diver, and they used us for all sorts of things like hull maintenance and putting uh, sacrificial anodes back on, clearing out uh, grills that, uh, that sucked in the water to keep the um, the small motors, the diesel motors inside the ships uh, running. There was quite a bit of work we used to do, but it was really, it was really good fun in that as well. Also, medical party. I guess if we ever did a, a test on ourselves in those days, we would have been the same equivalent as a certificate three in first aid. And uh, working down in the uh, magazines when uh, we um, had to reload the ship of ammunition, and that was a daily uh, situation when we were in Vietnam. We were a little bit different to the rest of the fleet in so much as that the Sydney did the milk run, taking the soldiers up and back, and uh, let's not be too cute about this. The Sydney was a target. She was a target from the time she left um, Sydney Harbour to the time she was in Vung Tau. She uh, was always trailed by uh, the Russian uh, trawler or the uh, Russian sub, as was Melbourne, being the flagship. I was on a different ship. I was on a destroyer and we were billeted. Uh, we were sent up to Vietnam and we stayed up there working with the US 7th Fleet, embedded in the US 7th Fleet, doing uh, interdiction uh, along the Ho Chi Minh Trail with our guns in support of the Australian Task Force a lot of the time. And then uh, doing a, a stint right up in the Tonkin Gulf as uh, Res Des, Rescue Destroyer, that is uh, sticking behind the uh, American carriers, actually the same job that Evans was going to be doing for the Melbourne. We found ourselves in company of huge carriers like the Ranger and the Constellation, uh, Kitty Hawk. These ships were about 
four or five times the size of Melbourne and Sydney. So you can imagine my trepidation being the only one on board that had been involved in that collision with Melbourne and uh, Evans. Here I was in company with these super, super American carriers and for about a month or so. And I tell you what, I didn't sleep too well in that month. I'd be padding around the deck in the middle of the night, ready for a quick getaway. Can you describe action of the interdictions of the Ho Chi Minh Trail? Being on the gun line, being in a being in a warship, it's flat out doing everything 24-7 and then periods of nothing. But we still had to work because we had to feed our, our, our men. So we worked 24-7 in the galleys. Uh, we were pretty flat out all the time. There was virtually no time for us to sort of sit back and say, you know, and, and take a second breath. Uh, that, that wasn't the nature of the branch we were in is that... Um, you know, the sailors needed food and they needed it on time and uh, we were measured three times a day. If those roller doors didn't come up on the galleys, uh, they'd be being belted by angry sailors who were hungry. So we worked our hearts out to make sure that um, those guys were fed. That It's the centre part of the ship. It's the morale. Everything happens around the main cafeteria in the galley. You can really set the pace for a happy ship or a sad ship just through the cooks. Tell me about the cooking. I mean, how large is the ship's company? The ship's company wasn't that large as what it was in Melbourne, of course, with flight crew. It was around about 1,500. Then that's a lot of work, but on board Brisbane we only had about three hundred and ninety odd guys. Um, that includes our uh, includes our officer corps of uh, 22, 23. But you're still having to prepare thousand and seventy odd meals a day. Oh yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And and at night too, a little bit of a supper for the guys coming off watch and cold up there, they're always hungry. Yeah, it's a lot of work, a lot of preparation, a lot of teamwork, not only by the small team that you were in where we had a, a leading cook and two able seamen cooks, very, very high competency guys, and we'd have about four teams of those and we'd just keep revolving and revolving and revolving all the way through. It was work hard, play hard, work hard again, I think. The play wasn't that much, it was more like boredom. So work hard, sleep, eat, work hard again, eat, sleep, work hard again. And I think the longest we had, the longest time we had on the gun line was a 54-day stint. <laughs> And we were sort of like zombies when we hit the uh, when we hit Hong Kong. After that, I tell you, were you in charge of dispensing the alcohol? Oh no, 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 no. That's a, that's a police job uh, on board the ship. The coxswain and uh, senior uh, sailors uh, dispensed the alcohol. In those days, it was a huge, big twenty-six fluid ounce can of beer, uh, and uh, used to get your beer ratio and guard it and go off to some back to your mess deck and uh, savor the Victoria bitter or the Melbourne bitter, whatever it was. Yes. Besides those doing the beer issue, that make you the most popular man on the ship, feeding the troops? Cooks, yeah. Cooks and uh, stokers, um, the guys who were in the engine rooms, they worked in very, very hard conditions on board the DDGs, the guided missile destroyers. They were very, very hot fire rooms and engine rooms. So those guys would be living in the galley all the time getting uh, what we call limers, which was um, ascorbic acid drinks, very high in vitamin C and so on and so forth, rot your teeth out. We didn't know that at the time. And ice. They disappear back down the uh, engine room with their uh, their drinks and their ice and boom, they'd come out about an hour later uh, trying to get more stuff off us and we were very aware that they could be suffering um, heat fatigue if we didn't uh, if we didn't look after them. So they were, they were the closest to us. But we found that by being open, and, and this is part of our job, was to be, wasn't just cooking. There was, there was something else going there that you couldn't define it, but if it was missing, you certainly knew it was missing. And I think it was something with the um, along the lines of the spirit of the whole thing that we were doing. We could keep people motivated just through our just through our attitude towards them as they were getting their food. It was a very important job that we did, and I always believed it, it, it went far beyond just cooking a steak or, or doing a chicken supreme or anything like that. It was an important job. It was an important communal job. 
We last heard from Willie Beatty when he was getting tattoos and being chased down the streets of Hong Kong. And uh, tell me about Derwent. Derwent was a, was a frigate. Uh, now, I'd have to say it'd be my best draft. I loved Derwent. I was on there for four years. The crew, we knew that, well, the crew was one of the top crews, I reckon. And uh, we had a ball in there as well. We took, uh, once again, we took Sydney to Derwent to Vietnam. This is in 67 by now? 68 onwards, I think. 68 onwards, okay. Yeah, I think. And we took her up there and we brought her back. Brought the, I think we brought the first lot of troops back on Sydney Derwent. We escorted them back. And uh, they weren't impressed when they got ashore here once again because Arthur Corwell, well, they're all. Waiting for us at the gate, dockyard, and throwing uh, little bottles of uh, things at us and little parcels for us, calling us killers and things, and all, a lot of the blokes were turned off by that. And I think after I left the Navy, I sort of gave it away then. I didn't want nothing to do with them until I met these blokes six, seven years ago. Well, when the first stories came out about the moratorium marches and the baby killers' um, claims and all that kind of thing, what was the reaction on the ship and yours personally? Well, we were told if we went ashore and caused trouble, we would be locked up, not them. And, uh, well, to us, it was just, we were doing a job. We were told the government asked us to do a job, and we are trying to look after him, mate, so we, that's all we were doing, just doing a job that we were told to do, and we did it. But uh, we think, well, what, what was wrong with us? We didn't do nothing wrong, you know, or any of them. They just didn't know they were told. But it was a bit harrowing trying to go ashore, though. I mean, it really was why they spit and throwing blood at you and bags of shit, you know, and things like that. So And you couldn't do nothing. And they were telling you if you did something, you were arrested, they could do all this to you. But you sort of didn't go ashore then. Well, you went the back way, you know, I'm not sure the back way. So they tried to avoid them. And how did this make you feel, though? I mean, you'd proudly joined the Navy and you were just doing what you were told. You were yeah. serving with pride and you were a young kid out exploring the world. Yeah. And then your country's throwing this dung back at you. It was pretty, actually, it was a pretty rotten feeling. It really was, you know, you think, well, you know. Well, actually, we thought they were a bunch of mongrels, but that was about it. Then uh, I think we were there when they somebody shot Arthur Cool. I think we sailed the day after they shot... Well, they don't know if they killed him or not. They shot at him anyway, so... No, we sailed after that, and that was, we didn't hear any more after that, so that was about it. But that's when you come back, so the army guys started going home in civvies, and they wouldn't go in the uniform, so neither way. So you sort of adapted to it and stay out of trouble. What were your duties on Derwent? Well, on Derwent, I was what's called a TOW. Technical officer rider as a stoker. I worked in the office. I was a little office boy. So you were out of the boiler room, but uh, still... Was, yes, for four years. Glorified stoker. Yes. And I did this, what they call a spare gear for the ship. I controlled all the spare gear for uh, engineering department. I run that. and did all the paperwork for the engineer and uh, the master log and all, filled all the ship's logs in for water and fuel and kept the running account on that. So And the, what they call the roster list for all the boys and the, what duties I did and things like that, yeah. Quite good. I, I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed that part of it. So managing the engine room, keeping the ship running. Yeah. Kind of uh, I learned how to type. <laughs> I did. Typewriter? Yeah, I was at Remington, yes. 90 words a minute. So no, no, I enjoyed, I enjoyed that. And uh, as I say, we did the first, did four trips, went to Japan, Hawaii. Did quite a fit on it, but I do it, actually. Japan, yeah, always good. Always, it's it's uh, found it hard because I was talking to my advocate about it when I was going for my pension. And they said, oh, well, how did you get on in Japan? I said, well, mate, what do you mean? Well, you know, you must have had a ball. I said, well, what can you do? They don't invite you home for tea. You don't speak the language. You can't go to the pictures because it's all in Japanese. I says, you go to the pub because you just hold up two fingers, two beers, three fingers, three beers. Apart from, no, no, it was good. They, they were quite nice. I've got, I still got some pictures of home of some of the nice people there from Japan. And Geisha girls there, never met them before, but to see them still going around them days is quite uh, extraordinary. Quite a good history actually over there. Not a lot to help my partner over there actually, well to see the cherry blossoms and things, there's quite a lot to see there. I mean, we went to Hiroshima, seen that, we did uh, did a few trips in, inland, around land with it, no, no, it was very good, I didn't mind at all. 
obviously you never met your uncles, but were you reminded of them walking around Japan? And no, not really. No, it never worried me. It's never, it never worried me. I mean, it's done and dusted. I think sort of let live. I mean, area it does. Some of the old, older generation still there, but they say they, uh, they forgive, but they won't forget. So no, it doesn't uh, worry me at that stage. No. Any other particular memories from Derwent? As I say, I loved Hawaii, going to Hawaii and doing that was I thought that was brilliant. To see Pearl Harbor the way it was and just the ship, the amount of ships the Yanks had, it's just, it's amazing. That's all. All around the Far East, Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, Bangkok. No, I just did the, the full Southeast Asia trip and do it, and I, I loved it. I loved the Far East. John Lord's early Vietnam experiences were fairly routine, but this was to change. When are you next at sea? Getting back from UK. I went over to UK in 1970, did a full year and came back to Australia, and that's when I joined HMAS Brisbane, which was, must have been about October, November, the end of that year. So back I went to sea. I was still a sub-lieutenant then, but the aim of going to sea was to get you a full bridge watchkeeping certificate, which then made you an officer to keep a watch on a warship in Australian Navy. It was supposed to take about six or eight months. And so what was your day-to-day role when you first got onto Brisbane? <laughs> Being sub-lieutenant, you're the most junior officer on board, other than if you had lucky enough to have midshipmen, they were really junior. So a bit of everything. Then. Well, it was called an SLJO, shitty little jobs officer, and you got all those <laughs> jobs. So I was lucky. I um, I ended up with sports officer. I love sports, so I ran all the sport on the ship for the sailors. That was good. I was a um, junior divisional officer, which meant divisional officers used to look after the welfare of groups of sailors. And normally you had about 30 of them to each officer and they had an assistant and I was the assistant and that, which was good. It meant you mixed and talked and got to know sailors a hell of a lot better, which gave you a tremendous background later on. I was still under training when um, Brisbane got sent to Vietnam. That was during my officer watch training time. We went off to uh, Vietnam while I was still qualifying to get my full bridge watchkeeping ticket. So I was doing sports officer. But when we got to Vietnam, I was really lucky and I guess it uh, was the set me up for the rest of my naval career in that I was appointed the assistant navigation officer, which meant that I plotted as a check on the navigating officer where we're going to put the first shell into Vietnam. So it really honed my navigation skills and I went on to become a navigating officer as a profession. So what was Brisbane's role in that voyage to Vietnam? We went up as one of the Australia, I forget how many ships we had in rotation there. There was obviously the three DDGs, uh, yeah, Hobart, Brisbane and Perth. And this was Brisbane's second deployment to Vietnam. The role there was you were a ship on the gun line. So you would join the American task group. They would assign you a piece of Vietnam and you would be a ship sitting different distances offshore, putting shells into uh, enemy held territory or enemy divisions moving around, nearly all in South Vietnam. We, In fact, we spent our whole time on the DMZ, which was the border between North and South Vietnam, which was quite exciting because that was quite a tense time at that period. This is in 1971 because the uh, uh, North Vietnamese were starting to have some success. And can you describe some of the encounters? You don't really get to see the enemy sitting six, seven kilometres offshore, but we were firing about uh, 26 kilometres inland, uh, total range 26 kilometres. My memories are that we we worked really hard, we worked lots of hours, but I guess uh, some of the negative aspects were the US spotters who were nearly always smashed on drugs because they used to talk to you all the time. And uh, some of my stories from there are just, it's quite frightening, the lack of professionalism of the US people in those, what we called spotters, they were calling our gunfire in at the time. At nights when they had nothing to do, they'd flash a torch at each other and shoot at the torch at each other. Yeah, that's how they amused themselves. 
but they were not in uh, they, were, they were not in the best of uh, um, what you call the most professional people that we kind of ran across. But that was getting towards the end of the war, so you can see the pressures coming onto people. Yeah, that's so that's a result of a bit of their military culture, but more the strain and longevity of the conflict. Yes, and of course by that stage in Australia it was happening. There was the anti-Vietnam in the US was huge, mm. so you had these young troops who were I think conscripted most of them. We never really had conscription. We had the lotto draw. And so you really had, they knew they had no support at home and there they were and they were just waiting at their time to go home. And we used to mix with a lot of the US Navy blokes when we went back to Subic Bay on R&R, as we called it, Rest and Recreation. And they were like that as well. They were just desperate to get back home for the whole thing to be over. My memory of the 1971 period was the Australians were absolutely professional still being there, whether they wanted to be there or not. In our ships, most of us wanted to be there. It was it was the height of our professional training. We prepared ourselves in Australia, went there, highly trained unit, and did it. I'm sure the Army did the same to their soldiers, but probably quite a few soldiers didn't want to be there, but they were still very professional. I think the US by that stage were probably one of the lowest periods they've probably ever been professionally in, in their history. And that's probably why Vietnam has such a lasting impact on their I culture. I think it is. Yes, yes, I, I think it is. Although we got flack when we got back or, you know, we had interactions with the public which weren't that pleasant, the US uh, was was far worse, I think. And that's it's just stayed with them right through. What's it like bombarding a target 26 kilometres away? You can't see what you're doing. You're following the guidance of observers. Mm. It's quite a surreal concept to try and just, you're firing blindly these incredibly powerful mm. weapons to some, and you can't even see the end result of what you're doing. That's true. And I guess it's the only doubt I had about what we're doing. I remember once I actually thought, because we had to do a prison exchange right on the DMZ in between our firing missions. And we had some North Vietnamese prisoners and they were going to exchange them for Americans, I think, but didn't come off. They didn't turn up. And my only thought then was, if I get captured, they're going to treat me as a um, uh, as a war aggressor against North Vietnam, and I'm not really that. I'm really John Lord, who's doing my job as in the Royal Australian Navy. So you know, you know, that kind of made me feel a bit unreal that you know, what I was doing was just normal. But you know, why would they treat me as an aggressor? Then to move a little bit into what was it like firing shells in? There's a bit of exhilaration in that the first shell falls where they see it and roughly where you want it. And our error was within 200 metres for the first shell, and then we get it down to 50 metres. The second one was that because I had the charts of where we were firing, and you don't know whether this is true or not, sometimes the shells were aimed right on villages. Or there was a village on the chart, let's put it that way. Now, by that stage, whether the village was still occupied, a real village, who knows? We never knew. Only the spotter would know. But you, know, you could see as you plotted the shell that there was used to be a village there. And that was a bit, at times, made you just wonder. And you'd never really get to talk to the spotters later to find out because they'd mostly be Americans, wouldn't they? They were all Americans. Okay, so you knew the reason you were firing on any particular target and what it likely was going to be. Yes, that's right. They'd call up, use our call sign. Brisbane's was Proud Mary, I think. We were Proud Mary. Proud Mary, this is it. We have a gun emplacement, boom, 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 this position, blah, blah, blah. So then we'd get down, plot and first shell, line the gun, down, put the shell in. It'd be a gun emplacement, troops moving in the open was another call, you know, a supply line underway. You know, something like that. So they were always the calls you got. David Dwyer was posted to HMAS Sydney in February 1970 as a galley cook. So you would have been posted there for its 16th voyage to Vietnam? Yes. I did uh, nine trips in Sydney, all told. How did those later trips compare to earlier ones you'd been on Anzac for? It was a really very, very busy. We'd take up to 500 troops on board, and I think we had equal amount of crew, and you worked your 
the living daylight. You had the really hard, lots of lifting, huge amount of lifting. Um, I went in as a night cook to start with, which is unusual for a leading cook to be a night cook. And you, you do a lot of preparation for the lunch before, cooking chips especially because you blanch them. Do a lot of vegetable preparation because in each watch there were four watches to start with. There were a leading hand and two cooks and you're cooking for a 1,000. Then you'd sleep during the day, which is just about impossible because the guys are coming in and out of the mess and that's where you lay down and you can't put your hammock up so you lay on the cushions that are in the mess. And uh, after about a week, you're so exhausted, it doesn't matter if a herd of elephants came out of the mess, you wouldn't hear them. You're just so tired doing the night shift. So uh, that went on for about three months and then the, uh, the chief cook put me into a, in charge of a watch, which was two ABs and I joined up with both of them. So it was quite good. It was like old homework. The galley was about 40 degrees when we were up top. The bakehouse was probably the same, maybe a little bit more. And I comparable in heat to the poor old stokers down below in the boiler room, which must have been 45, 46 degrees. When we were in Asia, it was extremely hot. Talking the old metric, I went there at 13 stone. And when I came off two years later, I was nine stone nine. My wife said I looked like I'd just got out of a prisoner of war camp. From the main galley, I went to be the ship's butcher. It was an even harder job. The ship usually carried two when uh, the ship was an aircraft carrier, two butchers and sometimes even three. But we were so short of cooks, it was just one. It was me. When we came alongside in GI, Garden Island, from a trip to Vietnam, we would uh, store ship. The natives, the New South Wales natives, would be given leave. Being a non-native, I was kept on board, but also being the butcher. Frozen meat would come alongside, truckloads after truckloads at 7 in the morning. By 730 They'd started, they loaded it onto the flight deck. It was taken down the aircraft lifts to the hangar deck. The hangar deck, they'd lift up a plate over on the port side, which looked straight down into the cafe. One part of the deck of the cafe would lift up, and that was the roof of the freezer. And then they'd block and tackle it down from the hangar deck into the freezer. Now, being butcher, I would have to handle every... I'd have probably two men in there helping me. I would have to handle every box of meat that came down, and there were tonnes. I mean, tons and tons of it. And we're talking like beef, lamb, pork, a range of stuff. Yep, 90-pound boxes, 60-pound boxes, 45-pound boxes. I'd get up at four in the morning to put the milk, which had thawed out. I'd had it thawed out in the fridge, what they call the fridge flat. Bring it up by hand. There was ready-use fridges in the cafe, and I put them in there. And uh, then I'd take it up to the chief's galley, up to the officer's kitchen, and they would get the, the captain's galley would get the milk from the wardroom galley, so I didn't have to worry about them. There's only the only cook, the cook was only cooking for the captain. Nice, good, nice little perk job that cooking for one. I would repeat this every single day, bringing meat up for two days ahead. It'd be partly frozen when I'd cut it up if it was dice. It was say fresh silver side or top side. I'd cut it up for a stew, and it'd take me hours. I'd finish usually eight eight thirty at night. I just couldn't spare anyone else, but the it was a bonus. When the army was on board, there was always with the national servicemen. You could rely on a butcher being there. He's been called up for national service and you would get an army butcher to help you, or civilian butcher who's doing national service in the army, which is a bonus. And uh, one trip we had two. Oh, it was a godsend. It was uh, very, very easy. And then I went down at uh, 1300 and the beer bosun came down with the beer party and they brought all the cartons of beer in for the night's issue and put it into the freezer, the cool room, uh, the freezer for the uh, frozen veg. And at about 1800, the beer bosun would come down, was usually a naval policeman, as they called them, a crusher. They'd pull out the beer issue for the first watch. The guys would come down from uh, their mess to collect it. They'd have 
they'd have their list of the mess and the people that were paying because we paid 20 cents a tin, uh, a can of beer. And the uh, there were two, usually two naval police, and they'd, they'd um, pop the can with a, an opener so that we didn't keep it. And it'd go up in the open carton, be handed up, maybe two or three of them, and they'd take it up to the mess and they'd, they'd drink it there. And uh, then I'd go down again at 1900 for the second issue of the beer, which were the guys that were on watch at that time. I think it was 1900 when I went down there, or 2000. Take the beer out and then uh, just check my temperatures. The uh, stoker would come down and, and write down the temperatures. Then I'd go back up to my butcher shop and start cutting meat again. It was exhausting. We lived in hammocks and uh, we had 30 guys in a, a um, mess, no bigger than this. So while you're working under these very stressful, long hours, tense conditions, you're at sea, going to and from a war zone, newspapers will start to have crept in on the ship about, you know, your baby killers and all the moratorium movements and all the Vietnam backlash. Do you remember that happening and how you felt at the time? Yeah, you read it in the papers. When you're in the environment where we're all servicemen, we just laughed at it. That's how I found it. Everyone just laughed. And uh, in those days, you had to go ashore in uniform. You had to, unless you're a petty officer and above, where you could wear civilian clothing. What we did was we had clothing at Johnny's, which is Royal Naval House in the city. In a locker there, you'd hide a locker for whatever period of time, and we'd go in there in uniform, and it was all Navy there uh, from all the other ships of the fleet, and change into civilian because you used, you, know, you used to get it thrown at you when you went. It wasn't too bad in King's Cross because there were so many sailors there uh, and a lot of the Army guys um, doing their national service, going to the cross. It wasn't so bad. It was out in the suburbs at the RSLs. We'd go to RSLs. It was good there. We didn't get that sort of treatment there. But in the street, you didn't get it. But we we just thought it wasn't too much. Uh, I, I didn't worry too much about it. Not much worried me. Walk me through some highlights of your next few years in the Navy. One of the things I remember, we um, were going to Vietnam. We'd left Singapore and a lieutenant commander had a heart attack in the wardroom and died. He's in pretty good company. There were two padres talking to him, an, an army surgeon and a navy surgeon, but they couldn't save him. They took him into Vung Tau with us, put him in canvas, prepared him, and put him in the freezer. And I remember hardly anyone had the beer issue that night. It was the it was the beer fridge. That's one thing that I remember, and I also remember how proud I was when I shipped one cock of the fleet, which we used to pull against other fleets, uh, other ships in the fleet with whalers, and also we got the Dempster Cup. We we just about took every um, award. And for young guys, only 17, absolutely proud of our ship, proud of ourselves, you know, and we walked around with our tally HMAS Vendetta on it. Boom, boom, look at us. There was another crew, if you like to call them that, on board which David also has distinct memories of. Tell me about the cockroaches. Well, most Navy ships at that time had them. In HMOs, Sydney, they were epidemic proportions. Even after they'd fumigated, we'd go back on board and smell the chemicals they'd used. And we had to seal everything before we left the kitchen so that none of this would get in. And you could wake up with five or six on your chest. It's in a mess, very hot. As I said, we'd sleep in 35, 38 degree heat. And they'd be on your chest, drinking your sweat. They were everywhere they're just and we used to laugh about it and um, describe some of them the really big ones as three badgemen uh, you get a badge for every four years in the navy and three badgemen's done 12 years and we'd say oh these are three badgemen and just laugh about it we accepted it and one unfortunately one time a young guy got one in his ear a very small one and he put his finger in to 
crush it and it crushed it, but he had pain in his ear and he went down the sick bay and had to s- syringe it out. wasn't very nice. They were everywhere. Probably wouldn't be accepted today, but we, we accepted it because we couldn't do anything about it. They were a real plague on Sydney. They were. They very much were, yeah. John Carroll shared with me a few memories towards the end of Australia's military involvement in Vietnam. Tell me about your second trip to Vietnam. The main trip that I did was April through June, June, July, which was known as Operation Rumbling. This is 67. And when I went back to Sydney in 72, I met up with David, who you've met. We did the last troop transport trip in, in February. And then we did another month-long trip in November. And that was the last trip that Sydney did. But you didn't know that at the time, that it was going to be the last trip? We didn't know it was, no. We were taking military aid up and we ended up, we took a platoon of soldiers with us with no arms. They had no rifles or apparently they were soldiers from all units around the the Sydney area that had uh, put in to do a, a trip on the Sydney. They worked partnership with us. We had one of their fellows working with the painter and a couple of them working with us as dog's bodies, if you like. <laughs> when we dropped off the, the cargo at Rung Tao, we headed off to Hong Kong, and on the way we uh, we met up with um, a ship called the Kai Wing, and it broken down. So we took her under tow and took her into uh, Hong Kong, and we all got prize money. I think we got about five bucks each. <laughs> but in those days, you didn't sneeze at it, so... Yeah, that was a bit out of the ordinary. The escorts were a bit more. Andrew used to, uh, on Yarra, he would have us closed up three or four days out. And if we were heading up to Hong Kong after we'd left Wang Tao, we would be at action stations all the way up the uh, South Vietnamese coastline, heading to Hong Kong. Back to Mark Kinder, who recalls the Brisbane being the last ship to fire in anger at Vietnam. How were you by the time you reached Hong Kong? Thirsty, very tired, yeah. I remember our first one, we got into Hong Kong and we were there for two days and we had to pull out because of a typhoon and then we rode the typhoon out in the middle of the South China Sea and that was horrendous. Riding out a typhoon in a 4,500 tonne destroyer, a superstructure of 150 feet and a draft of about 16 feet, the damn thing had rolled on wet grass. So you can imagine what it was like in that 72 hours in that typhoon, we, we really feared for our life. I, I could not get out of the bunk. I was strapped into my bunk for the entire duration of that, as was about 90% of the ship's company. It was horrendous. And uh, the reason we went back to sea is that um, if you're caught alongside in a small ship uh, in a typhoon, you're liable to get smashed up against the pier. In fact, when we came back into Hong Kong after riding out that typhoon, there was uh, a ship called the USS Regulus, and the Regulus was about 20,000 tonne. She'd been pushed up on the beach and her back had been broken uh, just with the force of the typhoon. So um, I think we're pretty pretty lucky being able to ride it out at sea and uh, being able to talk about it again. And when was that typhoon? That was uh, 71, 1971. It might pay to mention also that the HMAS Brisbane was the last ship that fired the odd angry shot in Vietnam. We were the last actual ship to fire a round of, um, a round of salvos and uh, that final round was uh, something like 20 rounds in uh, rapid fire. So I can imagine what, uh, what the recipients would have thought of that. But uh, yeah, we were the last ship. We had joined her, our sister ship, Perth and Hobart, and another one of our destroyers, a beautiful uh, ship called the HMAS Vendetta, which um, was a daring class destroyer. They were your four gunline ships. As separate from Sydney that did 
the run up and back, taking our troops in. We were up there engaged with the task force in the US 7th Fleet. So our job was a little bit different to the precious job of taking our, uh, our troops up and returning them safely to Australia. We had a bit of a um, reputation, so did our other DDGs for almost putting our bloody uh, our ships right up on the beaches. You stuck uh, short range? Yeah, right in their range. We weren't nine mile snipers, uh, as sometimes we're referred to. We were right in there. Uh, in fact, uh, Perth at one stage was bracketed by uh, artillery. Hobart was shot at and hit by um, an American uh, helicopter. A bunch of uh, missiles hit her. Uh, Brisbane came close, but uh, she was unscathed. But Brisbane on her first deployment there, I was on the second deployment. On the first deployment there had uh, a round, a five-inch uh, round go off in the barrel of her uh, her front mount, Mount 51, and uh, had to go back to Subic Bay and... Uh, corrected damage there, put in a new barrel and so on and so forth. So most of uh, most of the ships did come under um, under stress and fire, more so with Perth, I think. But uh, It still must have left the crew quite tense on Brisbane then because you're right there close. You can see it all happening and you're yeah. at direct risk of fire. Yeah, that's true. And if you'd like to really get a graphic presentation of that, you go to the uh, Canberra War Museum. You've actually got the Brisbane's bridge up there uh, as a full full working model and they've got one of our um, interdictions, I guess is the word, or interactions with the American uh, US Navy uh, Phantoms doing a, doing a bomb drop and we're right there sort of uh, off the coast and it's in graphic detail, you can hear it and you can actually see it on the flat screen TVs that they've put in, in place of the uh, windows on, on board the bridge. It's very realistic. It took me back just walking in there and smelling the smell of the oil and touching the wheel again and watching this going on. It was uh, uh, transported me back you know, almost 50 odd years. It was quite amazing. After Brisbane fires that final salvo, what happens next for you? We go back to Australia and then we do uh, Capital City uh, tours and such, um, just in the normal course of uh, what we would do. And then uh, Brisbane left for uh, an exercise over in the States, RIMPAC, and uh, I drafted off and went back to Cerberus by that time to uh, further do a course. So time on Melbourne, the flagship was quite uh, kind of interesting and, uh, and time on Brisbane was the same. I feel my time on Brisbane, I felt more of um, that I'd contributed to Australia's uh, war effort. John Lord also shares this memory. Where does Brisbane take you next? Uh, home. Uh, after nice. six, six and a half, seven months in Vietnam, we went home. And uh, to me, very exciting because I bought a brand new, I had a brand new MG delivered on the wharf because you spent no money up there. You just threw your pay packets in your safe every fortnight. And we had uh, an R&R period in Singapore, an R&R period in Hong Kong, and an R&R period in Subic Bay out of the seven months. So you had a fair bit of money just thrown into your safe. So you came home. And uh, you came home. We did a march shortly after going because we were the last major gunship in Vietnam. Uh, It was during our time. The next ship was trained up and got trained up, and then the government announced it. At the time, they were going to withdraw from Vietnam. So we got back and we did a march, and I guess that's the memory you hold was all these people booing and hissing as you went, did the march through, I think ours was in Sydney. And you know, at that time, you kind of lost a lot of faith in the Australian public for a while, but it, you have to recognise it wasn't the whole Australian public, and it was a very anti-sentiment. But it's definitely something I carried with me for perhaps I don't know, eight, ten years, that I was different. I was in the military, and that's how people had treated us. And, and I know there's a bit of that amongst Vietnam veterans went on for some time. I think all that's been re- repaired in Australia. Australia's a far different country now, but it did last for, I don't know, 15, 20 years after the war. It was that feeling of isolation or you weren't really part of the community? That was episode five. 
combat of life on the sea. Next episode, we trace the careers of our veterans, both beyond Vietnam and the Navy. I had these conversations at the Frankston Naval Memorial Club. I recorded a few extra stories at the club's weekly Friday night drinks. The guys there had an interesting mix of stories. You can hear them in the Season 2 bonus episode, Frankston Naval Memorial Club, with Harry Kime. Check it out. Never miss an episode. www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com And join the conversation on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at L-O-T-L Pod. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening. And lest we forget...